This is the Oklahoma Talking Company. The Monster Energy Speedway World Cup launches this weekend. Indian gains in popularity. And is Harley going to have new ownership? All this and more on this week's Power Sports Podcast. Hey everybody, I'm Jason Baffrey, and I'm in the studio with my good friend Eric Colvin. Uh, you've rolled in sweaty again today, but it's easy to understand because it's over 100 degrees in Oklahoma City today, I think. Working hard, working yeah. hard. Well, you, somebody's got to do it. So uh, me, I stay in the air conditioning all day as much as I possibly can. I'm jealous. Yeah, well. <laughs> so the Speedway Monster Energy Speedway World Cup kicks off this weekend. This is the team event. We have uh, addressed it previously on some shows, but it's going to be interesting. And uh, the first event is in Denmark on Saturday, and then the U.S. team will be riding on Tuesday, uh, at least our Tuesday. I don't know what that what that falls on the international scale, but they'll be racing in Sweden. And the uh, the team for USA is made up of uh, three-time Speedway champion Greg Hancock, uh, Ryan Fisher, Billy Janeiro, who is a big-time AMA Speedway champion, multi-time, uh, Ricky Wells, Luke Becker are the riders for the U.S. team. So we are hoping that they're going to have a great performance and uh, would love to see them get through this first event in Sweden on Tuesday. It's nice to see a U.S. team over there back like the Bruce Penhall, Kelly Moran, Bobby Schwartz kind of deal. Yeah, it would be uh, it would be really great. But I'm I'm very excited to watch the the team event, and this is kind of like the Olympics, if you will, for motorcycle racing because you have all the different company uh, countries represented with their teams. They've got their best riders, and the crowds are going to be insane. Uh, the first event on Saturday, they're racing in uh, Denmark, and it's going to feature Denmark, Poland, Russia, and the Czech Republic. And then uh, the U.S. will be racing against Sweden, Australia, and Germany. And that's going to get really interesting because, of course, you're going to have Adrian Lindback on the Swedish team. And you're going to have uh, Chris Holder and Jason Doyle on the Australian team. So you've got some of the top riders right now in the Speedway uh, Grand Prix championship points that are going to be in the team battles racing against each other. And unfortunately, the USA is going to meet them all on Tuesday night. And Germany's in there as well. So it it's going to be interesting, but a tough first round for the U.S. team. Very tough because all of those countries are very fast and have a history of being fast. The race-off will take place on July 29th, and then the finals will be on the 30th in Great Britain. So it's it's a big week for Speedway motorcycle racing if you're into that sort of thing. Nothing like being thrown in the deep end right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So tell me, they had a nostalgia event at Thunder Valley this weekend, and rumor has it that you went down there and showed them the way. Uh, well, I went down there and showed them my car and uh, how <laughs> now not to drive, probably. Yeah, Thunder Valley Raceway Park in Oklahoma 
had a big nostalgia race this past weekend, and I did get a chance to get out and do some racing myself. I have a 1956 Ford drag race car. It's, uh, it was built to run NHRA Super Gas, but we haven't done that in a while. But like to l- run the nostalgia races and get out with all the old cars and the old guys. And I'm not quite into the old guy club, but I'm quickly approaching it, I think. But uh, yeah, the car ran great, and it was great to get back behind the wheel. It's actually been a couple of years since we've been out with the car, and I, uh, I was a little rusty, to be honest with you. So how was it after taking two years off to get back in the car and to kind of the feel and prep for the race and go to the race and sign up and just the whole show? It was, it was a blast. I mean, it was great to get back out there and, of course, you know, see people that you haven't seen in a while. That's the great thing about any kind of racing is the, the family atmosphere and the family that you develop with the people that you race with and against. And, you know, there's rivalries out there, certainly on professional levels. But even in the NHRA or other professional uh, racing organizations, you know, most of the guys are friends with each other and will help each other out. And, uh, and, and something that you see in NHRA a lot is, you know, even with the big time teams is, you know, somebody has a problem and you'll often see other teams come over and help them out. And so it's just this great feeling of camaraderie, even though that there's rivalry when you come to the starting line. So, you know, you miss that if you're away from it, um, not to that we were to that extent, but it was great to get out and get behind the wheel. And, you know, our car runs uh, nine seconds and quarter mile um, 140 miles an hour, give or take. And uh, it was a little hot. Actually, it was a lot hot. So putting on a three-layer fire suit and a helmet and gloves and getting into a car that doesn't have any working air conditioning or windows that roll down when it's 90-some degrees outside is a little challenging when you're not really ready for that. But I tried to stay hydrated. But, you know, it was fun to make, make some passes down the track and car felt good and ran great and uh, we have a car that uh, gets a lot of attention you know we put a lot of work into the car and even though it's uh, the car itself is 20 years old 20 some years old since we built it it still gets a lot of attention and the kids love it and uh, it's always great to see people come up and and appreciate the work that you've put into something as, as I'm sure you know with your motorcycles that you've built yes and let's talk about like the the fan involvement and and the driver involvement so was the was the event well attended it was it was very well attended i was shocked by the turnout for a nostalgia event um and then nick duty and larry croft the guys that are running thunder valley raceway park these days are doing a great job the race was well run uh, it moved along efficiently uh, it, we ran in conjunction with the southwestern heritage racing association which is a really cool organization that i hadn't seen uh, any one of their events before but they've got some great classes they run some heads up index classes so you had running on the eighth mile you had cars running 450s and their indexes are 450 five flat and 550 and you've got altereds, front engine dragsters. There were a couple of nostalgia funny cars. Oh, wow. Uh, not like nitro cars, but, you know, they've right. got blower motors on them and everything. There like was, an alcohol car? Yeah, kind of like an alcohol car. But they've been tuned down a little bit to run on the index and everything. But just some beautiful, beautiful nostalgia cars out there. Uh, there was a uh, 
and altered with a Fiat top, Topolino body that was just amazing. And it was running in the, uh, I think, the NE1 class. So it was running a 450 index, you know, and it was just this great-looking altered. And then they had the Outlaw Fuel Alterds down there as well. And if you haven't been to a drag race where the Outlaw Fuel Alterds are, are racing, you definitely need to go. They run a lot in Texas and some other other states and they were at thunder valley this past weekend but they put on a great show they run uh, you know essentially blown alcohol engines some of them are running a percentage of nitro so you get a little bit of the nitro in there a lot of them are you know kind of a funny car style chassis with an altered body on them but they put on a great show and they're fun to watch especially when you get the cackle of the nitro and uh, you get some tire smoke and you get they're a little bit wild to drive and they're moving around on the track a little bit and they're they're just a blast as a spectator to go out and watch those cars so go check out the outlaw fuel alters they are sometimes they go straight sometimes they don't go so straight that's exactly right so uh, that's what makes it fun and you never want to see anybody get into any kind of major trouble but they get into just enough trouble to make it exciting without anybody getting uh, getting hurt or tearing up anything I like to see a lot of diversity in an event. Sometimes if it's just one kind of particular car or one kind of particular bike or something, it gets a little it gets a little old sometimes. Uh, I know it's weird hearing that from me, being since I just love racing, period. But I think for the crowd, diversity is important in well, a show. Yeah, and that's what I think you've seen popularity in uh, vintage and nostalgia racing coming along. Uh, certainly coming from a drag racing background and being involved with the NHRA previously. And now you see a lot of nostalgia races. You see the nostalgia nitro funny cars gaining in popularity and doing shows all over the country. The reason people like those and the reason that I like them, because I, you know, I loved the funny cars of the 70s and the 80s. And today, as, as cool as funny cars are with their three-second passes, 300 miles an hour, they pretty much all look alike. I mean, it's whatever stickers you put on them, you know, the, you know, and the big joke was uh, for this year when John Force switched from the Ford Mustang to the Camaro, basically they just, they didn't have the official Camaro body yet at the beginning of the season. So they just changed the decals and, you know, the headlight decals to make it look as much like a Camaro as they possibly could before they got their new body, which still doesn't look anything like an actual Camaro. So, you know, they're all about the aerodynamics, and I understand that. And and NHRA drag racing is about how quick and how fast you can possibly go. Aerodynamics are essential to that. But they have gotten away, as has NASCAR, has really gotten away from, you know, what made racing popular in the in the 70s and 80s which was you know win on sunday sell on monday and having a car that the fans can associate with you know where you can recognize a um a when you could chevy, recognize a camaro when you could recognize a camaro or a chevy monte carlo or a ford thunderbird or you know the the plymouth superbird which that's kind of a wild choice to, to pull out of the air but you know what i'm saying i mean richard petty became famous racing the the, the plymouth and the dodges but people knew what those cars were the challengers and the chargers and, and everything of those days they had Drag more of a production they had they followed more of the lines of the production cars where yeah. now it's just it's all about uh time in the wind tunnel yeah NHRA Pro Stock got popular because Bob Glidden, I mean, started out, you know, in a 
had a Mustang or a Maverick or a Pinto. And yes. then, you know, the series of Thunderbirds in the early 80s where he dominated to win 10 NHRA Pro Stock Championships along the way. And you knew what those cars were. You knew when Bill uh, Bob Glidden pulled up next to Warren Johnson and Bob Glidden was in a Ford Thunderbird and Warren Johnson was in an Oldsmobile, those cars looked completely different. And you knew what they were and you could go to the dealership the next day and find a car that looked almost identical. Pro, stocks, pro stocks today all look alike from the the Dodge. I don't even know what they're running for, for the Dodge anymore. The Dodge Dart, I guess, is what they have now. And, you know, the, the Pontiac GXP, well, everybody, I, that's what they had. Now everybody's gone to the Camaros. But it's just not the same. And so nostalgia racing, certainly in drag racing, and, you know, it was the heyday. You had all of these different classes. You had front-engine dragsters. You had Alterds. You had 1956 Fords and 55 Chevys. And uh, you had nostalgia Superstalkers, which they had on Saturday night at Thunder Valley as well. So you had the uh, the Plymouths with a four-speed and a Hemi in them. And, you know, everybody knew what those cars were. And I think people re- really like that. And we've gotten away from that in racing. And to me, it's it's to the detriment of, of the sport and uh, the fan um, acknowledgement of it and, and just being able to associate with cars like they used to. Well, diversity has definitely gone by the wayside in modern racing. However, in vintage racing... I like to see a lot of diversity, but there seems to be a lot of guys that try and squelch that. I think that there's a lot of pit Nazis out there that that do more damage than good with a lot of the vintage racing. Yeah. Speaking of vintage racing, uh, we've got a little bit of news. If you were into vintage motorcycle racing, and you've probably heard us talk a little bit uh, on previous shows about the Vintage Dirt Track Racing Association, which is kind of based in in Texas. They do a lot of races in Texas, but uh, it's if you're in the Oklahoma, Texas region, if you will, um, they do most of the flat track racing around here. So, Eric, you, you brought some news in today. Jake Latimer of Grand Prix Speedworks, as of today, has taken possession of the Vintage Dirt Track Racing Association. And this is a big change, a big deal. And uh, Jake, who we've mentioned, he uh, builds the the body work, a lot of the body work for a lot of the even the pro teams that are running on the AMA Pro Flat Track Circuit, and does that. And he's recently moved to Oklahoma from Wyoming, if I'm not mistaken. That's and, correct. Uh, so this is a big jump to get in and and get a sanctioning organization. Uh, but I think it's I think it's going to be a good thing. I. I it's going to be a very good thing. Um, the Vintage Dirt Track Racing Association, it's, it's time for a change and it's time for some expansion. And it got pretty small for a while and it got pretty confined, like you said, to Texas for a while. Um, it didn't go away. I'm very thankful for that. We were asked to be involved uh, about a decade ago and we have worked really, really hard to, to keep it going. Um, it stayed going. But it was time for some change, and it was time for some expansion. And the previous owner, David Henry, struck a deal with Jake, and they made it, finalized it today. And so we've been working on the last of the 2016 season, what that will be, and then looking for 2017. Yeah, so hopefully we couldn't get Jake in with us today, but hopefully we're going to get him next week, and we'll get a little more detail and conversation with what the future holds for the VDTRA. 
And uh, I think it's going to be exciting. Jake is uh, is a guy that's passionate about the sport and obviously heavily involved in the sport. So there should be some great things coming down the line. And if you're into flat track racing and if you're in this part of the country, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, all of these surrounding states, this could be a great thing for you if you're a, a flat track racer and especially if you like the vintage stuff. They're looking to... Uh, have events in texas they're looking to have events in louisiana oklahoma arkansas kansas and new mexico yeah that would that would be great it'd be great to have a a regional series and to see uh, much more flat track racing going on around these states than than what we've seen in previous years there's talk today of merging with uh canon racecraft who has performance coatings and the spring maker, which builds springs for the power sports industry, UTVs, ATVs, uh, motorcycles. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also do some car stuff. Um, They have been working on a vintage MX series. And David Henry, who was the owner of, previous owner of VDTRA, owns North 40 Cycle Park. And they would have events that would have vintage motocross and vintage flat track. And if you haven't been to one of those bike weeks you should check that out it's really neat you'll see vintage motocrossers from as old as the 50s all the way up to some modern stuff and then the vintage flat track event and it's a really really neat uh two-day deal so with canon wanting to get into vintage motocross and myself and jake being tied closely with canon uh we had some discussions about having some events where we would have vintage bike days where there would be vintage motocross and vintage flat track combined yeah that sounds great that'd be a lot of fun a new addition is going to be a developmental class for uh the youth where they would start out four or five years old and have some little bitty mini bike classes and then you would progress up until you're about the age of 18 then from there you would progress into the ama stuff like uh, the GNC two yeah. events, uh, so to speak. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, everything would be documented, and the AMA would recognize the series, and that seems to be going along pretty well, also. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to get Jake in here and uh, and talk a little more in detail about what the plans are, and uh, we can get more in detail about some of the the technical things and uh, about vintage racing and. It should be uh, should be interesting, but it, great great situation for Jake Latimer of Grand Prix Speedworks and the Vintage Dirt Track Racing Association. And Eric, I'm sure you'll be deeply involved with all of this as well. Neck deep, I'm hoping still, and <laughs> looking forward to that. But on the vintage on the vintage subject, it's it like you said, it is becoming huge. Uh, the vintage cafe racer style uh, is has come back now three times in my lifetime (laughs) uh you know the street tracker uh a lot of people think that it's relatively new but it's actually not uh it's had several runs um it's just been called the different names before it was called street tracker but i think i think that vintage from clothing to vehicles is getting bigger every single year well with the boomers getting to the point where they they are reliving their heyday. Of course, a lot of them are, are getting older and older, but they have the money, the financial means to get into things. They want to buy the clothes, participate in the sports 
that were popular when they were younger or that were from their their time frame. So I think you're seeing a lot of growth in those areas right now. What are your views on the guys in their 20s that are that are being pulled into this retro vintage kind of situation? Well, I think it's is it they, fascination because I just never saw when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, it seemed like it was new new new. There wasn't a lot of of vintage interest. Uh, at that time, everybody wanted modern, latest and greatest and futuristic. And now it seems to go the other way with the guys in their 20s. Yeah, I think a lot of it is the the interest in the, the retro stuff. And it's been, I don't know, I've always been, I've always felt like I was born in the wrong era anyway. I, there, there's a Brian Setzer song, uh, 59, I, you know, and he talks about he was born in 59. And, yeah. and, and I feel like that. You know, I maybe was a generation a little late, but because I just I love all of the cars from from those eras, always have uh, love the hot rod style, the traditional hot rod style. Uh, you know, when they were taking 32 Fords but and they were turning them into hot rods in the late 50s and early 60s, that's the style of cars that I like. Uh, you know, you had 70s of getting getting into more of the you know, you had the, the jacked up rear end and the big tires and all of that stuff. You had the door the stops, right? Yeah. And then you got into the pro street craze in the eighties and everything, but I've always loved the traditional hot rods and the street rods and the lead sleds and that sort of thing. The styling. I mean, I'm a rockabilly guy. I like rockabilly music. I like the look. I, you know, walk around with my jeans rolled up. You know, so I'm probably not the right guy to be asking about this because I'm I am officially stuck in the wrong era. So but I think you see a lot of the young guys, too, that are are gravitating towards that. And they've taken it's a little bit of a, a mashup of some of the traditional hot rod and the greaser style and the rockabilly style and some of the punk style, you know, to get a little further on. And so you see, uh, especially in California, I mean, they're. I remember going to the um, Hot Rod Reunion, the NHRA Hot Rod Reunion in Bakersfield, California. That had to have been fun. It's incredible. I mean, it's an incredible event. But there's a whole segment of culture out there that certainly showed up there that are car clubs that live their life like it's the 50s. They dress, they have, I mean, they have rat rods, which are, you know, rat rods are popular now. But they have rat rods and traditional hot rods, but they dress the dress. They dress the part like they, graf- they American walk, graffiti. They walk the walk, they talk the talk, and that is how they live their lives. And you could look at it as being a little strange, and you can look at it as being kind of cool. But, I mean, I think you see uh, some of the younger generation hearkening back to, you know, because it's just like the race cars of today. They all look alike. All of the cars today look alike. Look at the street bikes; they're the same. Yeah, it, if I mean, unless you're looking at supercars, you take you know the average car. They all look like they exactly the same. You, you exactly. I mean, a a Ford Taurus and a Chevy Malibu are virtually indistinguishable when you start pulling all the badges and everything off. And they look enough alike, and nobody's going to turn either one of those into a hot rod, most likely, because there aren't any cars, with the exception of a Mustang and a Camaro in the modern age, that anybody's going to want a hot rod, because they just don't have enough style. 
you know, growing up, it seemed like that a lot of that stuff just rolled over and was just accepted. It wasn't necessarily considered vintage. It was just considered hot rod. Yeah. And it all blended. It was the same with hot rod boats. It was the same with hot rod cars. It was the same as hot rod motorcycles. And it seems like now that everybody wants to put a label on something. This is a particular style or era here. This is a particular style and era there. But in fact, when I was growing up, everything just progressed forward. And the tea buckets were still popular. They weren't considered vintage. It was just a tea bucket. Yeah. I mean, you look at even, I mean, the the popularity of the pinup girl style. You got to like the pinup girls. I don't care who you are. You got to like <laughs> pinup girls, man. Well, you do. But I just, I find it interesting that, that girls in 2016, now maybe that's dying off a little bit, but I'll I mean, dress of, like that every day. A, a couple of years ago, I mean, you were seeing more and more and you're seeing models do that style with the, the pencil skirts and, yeah. and the bandanas and the hair, the, the bouffant hairdos and things like that. You know, so what is it about that era that is so magical, not only to to our age, I mean, because we just missed it, you know, um, I, I hear my my parents talk about things like that. And I mean, they could have been American graffiti, you know, for all my dad, you know, had hot rods and motorcycles and stuff in the 50s and uh, 60s. Yeah, mine did too. You know, and, and I think it was more part of the average culture then, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it was just kind of, that was kind of the way things were. But you know, we just missed that and we had a little bit different styling, but we look back at that as this thing. But I mean, what is it that in 2016, you know, has kids and like you said, the 20 year olds that are looking back 50 some years and liking that, you yeah, know, which brings us to like uh, what we were talking about earlier with Harley Davidson and their struggles and Indian and Polaris. Uh, you know, Harley Davidson has been struggling with motorcycle sales and a lot of the stock market says it's because they're not keeping up with styling what people want They're They have a particular motorcycle. Now, don't get me wrong. I like certain aspects of Harley Davidson and have some Harley Davidson competition motorcycles and stuff. But a lot of times Harley Davidson will have a super glide and they'll put an extra piece of chrome on it and add three more letters to the acronym and call it a new model when it's the same thing. Yeah. And they're, they have what they call the outreach uh, customer base. And it was primarily women or even in some cases considered minorities. And they wanted different styling. Well, Polaris took that on and then Polaris buying Indian. So not only did Polaris include it into the Victory motorcycles, but they also let it run over into the Indian motorcycles. And now all of those are rivaling or in some areas outselling the Harley Davidson now. But what's interesting about that to me is, I mean, you look at at Victory and Indian and what is it about? I mean, obviously they have some different styling uh, cues and both are, are magnificent looking motorcycles, a Victory and an Indian. But as far as different models, they don't have any more choice. I think than, it's the styling the of their choice, is, actually. Is, is it, it? It's just a more modern styling or more edgy or well, I, which the Indians, I mean, they, they are much more classic looking than even the Harley because, I mean, now you're getting into full fender skirts and the whole bit with some of the Indians. Well, on the classic look and with the vintage deal, let's look at Triumph and their Thruxton. 
It yes. looks like a uh, Clubman racer from the late 60s or the very early 70s, right. right? Right. But look at the Bonneville. The Bonneville is an updated, no doubt updated motorcycle, but look at its styling. You can clearly see the heritage of the Bonneville of the 50s and of the 60s in there. Yeah. Well, and I think that Triumph has done an exceptional job, I mean, because they have modern motorcycles, and they have the Bonneville and the Strambler and others that look like bikes from the 50s and 60s, but then they have the road race-looking bikes They have the Daytonas. Well. And yeah, the Daytona. That's what I was trying to think of. And uh, and then the- But uh, they have parasitic car bikes also, like yeah. the Adventure Tour bikes, right. you know? Um, I think that the- that Polaris, let's look at the Victory Motorcycles. Victory Motorcycles, uh, even with the models that were done before uh, the Arlen Ness got involved, were still uniquely different in their styling. Mm-hmm. It didn't look like uh, a metric cruiser. Uh, it didn't look like a super glide. It was its, if you saw it, you knew what it was. Yeah. Where, let's look at the Japanese cruisers. It a lot of times whether you like the Japanese brands or not, and we're not trying to knock any of the brands, obviously. But a shadow looks like a Starline motorcycle that looks like an intruder. Yeah, and they're all basically based on a look of a Harley Davidson. They are. They're all like a Superglide. Yeah. Well, because the Japanese market saw the popularity of Harley Davidson and wanted something to compete with that, so they affected the styling of the Harley. But, you know, the thing about Harley Davidson is the, obviously, that V-twin sound. The uh, It is the sound. It is the sound. It is the nostalgia of it, the heritage of Harley Davidson Company. And, I mean, what other motorcycle can you say goes, potato, 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 potato? It's exactly <laughs> correct right there. And they've got marketing that is second to none yeah. uh, as far as their motorcycle sales goes. But interesting though even though their bike sales are down and victory motorcycles and indian motorcycles are taking a huge cut out of that um their motor clothes and coffee mugs and ink pens are sky high which i think is is odd that you would sell more t-shirts than you sold motorcycle units well because you have people that don't ride motorcycles that still go and buy t-shirts and you can buy a harley davidson t-shirt at the airport. I mean, I there's a Harley <laughs> Harley Davidson store in the Denver airport, so you can buy the Denver Harley Davidson T-shirt without a motorcycle while you're passing through on your way from you know New York to L.A. There's a lot in that, and <laughs> those sales, like I said, are are huge. And it seems like th- this is another deal that with marketing. Although I said they had a really good marketing. By the way, I can't help but notice you're wearing a Harley Davidson. I t-shirt. have a Harley Davidson T-shirt on, <laughs> and a lot of guys tease me and say that uh, my T-shirt is an oxymoron because it says Harley Davidson Racing. No. But well, I, I mean, tell them I said, "Hey, I'm the owner of several of them, and and I like them. I like." motorcycles and yes. i like a diversity of motorcycles right i like a very very small amount from each manufacturer yeah. Anybody if, I had, if i had the money i'd have at least 10 and they would all be different i am lucky enough to have over 40 in my collection of vintage motorcycles and we have them from japan and the united states and spain and italy and the czech republic and sweden and germany and you know uh what we need to do then is 
since you haven't ever invited me over yet, uh, we need to come over and take some photos of some of your bikes and post them on the website so people can see some of the cool stuff that you have. We can do that. We've got everything from vintage road racers to vintage flat trackers and vintage motocrossers, and yeah, we could do all of that. Yeah, that'd be great. So uh, I will get Eric to invite me over uh, sometime. Have a cookout. Maybe. And uh, we'll take some photos of some of his cool bikes, and then we can post those at oklahomatalking.co, and then you'll be able to see those from the Power Sports Podcast. You can see Eric's own personal collection as well as some of the other cool things. I think that uh, as far as, like, Harley-Davidson goes, I think that they definitely can't ignore Indians' momentum that they have yeah now let me ask you this okay do because we've talked about the styling and obviously each of those brands put uh, victory indian harley davidson they have individual styling you can tell those three bikes apart they're all american made allegedly yes is it about the styling is the styling what is resulting in this change or is it the pricing i think it's both I really do. I think that it is the styling, which is uniquely different. Uh, if you see a fat boy or you see a soft tail, uh, you can say, hey, is that a soft tail? And the owner almost gets upset and runs off this acronym that's 13 or 14 letters long. But you can still look at it and tell that it is distinctly a Harley Davidson, right? Well, the same can be said for the victory. If you look at a victory, it's clearly a victory. And the new Indians, even with their retro styling, um, is still different. But Indian has taken uh, – they've taken a road like you see a lot at Barrett-Jackson and Mecham Auctions where you've got the old Camaros and the old Corvettes that have the old styling but a lot of the update. And if you'll notice, those sell huge. Um, I think that they've taken that road and ran with it, and I think it's been very successful for them. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, and as you've mentioned, I mean, Harley-Davidson now is in a little bit of a tough spot to the point where they could be looking at being bought out. If you'll remember in the 70s, AMF buying Harley-Davidson? Yeah, I think most people want to forget that particular time. There's a lot of people that would like to forget that. But there is a company that is interested in trying to buy Harley-Davidson. The name of the company is KKR, and they are a private holdings company. Uh, Interestingly enough, there is a BMO Capital marketing analyst uh, named Garrick Johnson that says that it's probably the best thing that could happen uh, to Harley-Davidson in the better part of a decade. Do we know, and we should have looked this up previously, but is KKR an American-based company or is it a foreign-based company? You know, I looked for that actually, and there's not a lot on them uh, that I could find. Uh, So I thought what I would do is we would follow up on this and we'll find out who this company is and maybe we can get a little bit more information about what their intentions are and to keep it a u.s company or to or hopefully harley davis wouldn't fall to the same uh demise that a lot of other companies have where they've been bought out and taken out of country yeah that would be terrible uh, i think that i don't think anybody would do anything like that with that brand because that brand is about as american as you can get when it comes to the marketing aspects of it you know so to take that out and lose that because so many people now 
I mean, we can get into the conversation of where all of the parts for Harley Davidson are made, but everything's made worldwide anymore. There's right. nothing that's pretty much just U.S. or just German or whatever. Yeah, but I it it would be interesting to to see how that kind of falls out if if that were to even happen if the sale were to take place. Um, you know, and, and we we alluded to the AMF days. I mean, that was not a heyday time for Harley Davidson motorcycles. They were. You can find if you can find any of those bikes still running, you're uh, you're pretty lucky. The clue there is still running. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it, you know, that doesn't that doesn't bode well. It doesn't. And if Harley Davidson is looking at a buyout, uh, I would hope that at least Harley Davidson would keep controlling interest and would take the money and would change up whatever they need to change up as far as sales goes whatever they need to do whether it be colors or styling or a new model an actual new model not just a new dress on another super glide or sportster or something yeah and you you talked a little bit about the the diversity of models but the v-rod is about the you know i like the v-rod a lot and a lot of people don't like it for some reason well a lot of people don't a lot of Hardliners, hard, hard li- liners don't consider it a true Harley Davidson because you know one of it's water cooled and it's it's a different kind of yeah, engine. It's just and better. Porsche was involved in the de- design and development of it, so oh my gosh, it's not a Harley Davidson. But I mean, it's a cool motorcycle. It uh, it is completely different from anything else in the line, and so it you know it. Uh, that is about the only diversity they have. Like you said, they've changed up models, and you had some, you know, you get some diversity in the Sportsters, and you had the 48 and the 72 that came out, which were different stylings of a Sportster uh, that came out a few years ago. And I liked both of those models. I thought they were really cool looking and uh, a little bit different, but all still based on the same basic premise. You're correct. And one thing that I liked that Harley Davidson did was when they came back with a red, white, and blue. Uh, Superglide, back from the boat tail days, which I actually thought, even when I was little, liked the boat tail Sportster and liked the boat tail Superglide, even to this day. Yeah. And to me, that that body style. I mean, yes, it was a, a Superglide, but the the seat was really neat, and the tank and seat combination together worked really well. And it just seems like they've gone away from that. Yeah, and they've they've done some different bikes. I mean, of course, when the the big chopper craze of the '90s came out, they came out with the um, what was the one? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot the one that had the seat that flipped back and uh, had a bigger tire on it. And I I've gone completely blank on what the what the name of that bike was. So the Harley Davidson with the flip up seat. You're talking about the Harley Davidson Rocker. Yes, it was the Rocker, and it was kind of taking advantage of the you know the Orange County chopper look, if you will, from the factory. It had a little bit wider tire, had kind of the raked front end, and you know so they were trying to capture everything that was going on at that particular time. And that was a good idea, and I believe that that was fairly popular. It's just it's a shame that they have such great ideas they follow popular trends like that and then they later on they drop the ball yeah it does seem to happen and and that bike you know didn't last for a long time and is not it's certainly not one of the collectible harley davidsons that you would go looking for these days well you worked for a harley davidson dealer so at the time that that came out how was it received by the public 
Well, I wasn't. That was uh, before I was actually doing that. So we'd get a few used ones in every now and then. And there were some people that were interested in that look, and you could pick them up. You could pick them up relatively inexpensively, considering uh, it was a Harley Davidson. I mean, because some used Harleys are still almost as much as new ones. So when you were working for Harley Davidson as a salesman, did they still have the waiting list, and you had to buy a place in line, and people were waiting months for the delivery of their motorcycle? It just depends on what kind of motorcycle uh, it was. Some of the new models that would come out, there would be that, but certainly not on a regular basis. Not like it was in you know ten years ago or whenever that was. That it, things like went two thousand really to two thousand five, when it was just unreal to try and buy a Harley Davidson. Yeah, I mean, you could certainly go go in and buy a you know a Heritage Softail or a. Uh, a Dyna Wide Glide or a Sportster or anything. I mean, like you base model motorcycles. Well, not even base model motorcycles. I mean, we had um, Heritage Classics. You know, full fully dressed out with everything that you could possibly imagine on it that you could ride out that day. So, so no waiting list at that time. That no. was after that craze. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, as a salesman, do you think that that hurt or helped Harley Davidson in the long run? The waiting list. The waiting list? Oh, well, I think in the long run, it it helped because anytime you have that kind of, I mean, it's like an iPhone. Uh, You go out and the new iPhone is released and you've got people that are now camping out all night to be in line at the Apple store to get the new iPhone. It is, it's, it's a marketing tool. You know, you create a- Prestige with it? Prestige that comes along with it, which Harley, you know, capitalized on. I mean, it was a prestige thing to have a new Harley. And, uh, but certainly if there's, if you, any idea of a limited edition or to be an early adopter is going to create a fervor around it. And so I think they capitalized on that, you know, when they could. And they certainly, you know, took advantage of that at, at a good time to do that. How long do you think that wave lasted? How much momentum do you think it gave sales in the years to follow? Well, I think, you know, probably a good 10 years, uh, I mean, give or take. But, you know, I think you still see a little bit of that. I mean, some of the other newer models that come out, I mean, you see people coming out to to get them and and try to – and there is a list sometimes that's involved with getting one of those. Or, you know, only one comes to a dealership, so – you know, people are trying to get a hold of it as quickly as they can. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. And it's just like, you know, anything, like I mentioned, the iPhone, uh, everybody wants to have the new iPhone as soon as it comes out. So anytime anything remotely new comes out from Harley Davidson, people are, you know, falling all over themselves to try to get it as quickly as possible. Which is weird. Uh, You would think that that would boost sales more than it has and they wouldn't have such a a reduction in like their stock ratings and sales being down so do you feel like that there's not enough of those particular models to keep their total sales up like popular models or models that people like like it's too much of a of a finite line of the models that they offer well i don't think anybody any manufacturer is going to develop a completely new product 
uh, that off, and except for maybe Apple. <laughs> but you know, it, you don't see car dealer, car manufacturers coming out with a brand new model like all of the time. I mean, every now, maybe they do one a year, I guess. Uh, they have you know, a few just, upgrades or yeah, something. Yeah, you'll have upgrades, but uh, a completely new and different model. Um, you know, you're not going to create more than one of those probably each model year. And you're probably not going to do that each model year. You're going to do one every five years and then make modifications to it. You know, uh, it'll come out in two colors in the first year, and then you'll have five colors the, the second year and different wheels and things like that. But So on that same line of thought, um, back to do you think that maybe they don't build enough dressers or as they call them now baggers when i was growing up they were called a dresser so they don't produce enough of a particular kind of dresser which seems to be popular now or maybe they don't produce enough of a particular kind of super glide or something along those lines no i feel like they have a a good variety within what they have i mean within the styling and the the stylings and the models that they have they have good selection in my mind, uh, you know, colors, accessories, things like that. And I think you see a lot more. We talked about some of the younger generation going back to the hot rods and things like that. You also see a lot more of the younger generation getting into the baggers. Uh, you see a lot more 20 somethings, 30, early 30 somethings going out and buying a street glide or a road glide. Uh, and, you know, certainly if they have a, a wife who wants to be comfortable, they're looking at heritage classics. But they are getting more baggers. And I think what you are seeing is now with Indian and Victory developing their bagger segment uh, more than they had previously. I mean, uh, what was it, A few, just a couple of years ago that Victory came out with the cross-country. And then, of course, they had the Victory Vision, which is probably the most radical that is styled motorcycle. That is a futuristic bike, is it yeah, not? Yeah, it's really cool, and it looks really comfortable. And, uh, you know, if you're going to go on long rides, that's probably one that you're going to look at because it is so radically different from anything else on the road. And you want to be, if you want to be seen and you want to have something that stands out of the crowd, the, the Victory Vision is a good bike to do that. But then they came out with the cross-country, something that looks more like a Harley Street Glide along those lines. You know, you've got the full fairing on the front and and the bags, but it's not a a full dresser. But, uh, you know, but it's got some, I think it's a beautifully styled motorcycle for that kind of a a motorcycle. I've had several visions at my shop, motorcycles that is, that we've serviced and rode. (laughs) Not the LSD kind. No, no, no. My (laughs) wife won't allow me to do that, but... Ergonomically, that vision is a nice motorcycle. Yeah. Uh, when you set on it, it fits the rider well. Um, all of its switches and positions seem to be well thought out. And not being a dresser fan by any sense of the word, uh, having ridden lots of Harley Davidson dressers, unfortunately, Gold Wings, and ridden a a lot of the Vision motorcycles, they're nice. Uh, I actually like its ergonomics better, almost even better than a lot of like the BMW dressers. Hmm. Interesting. That's, uh, you know, it's just one of those bikes that I don't think it comes to the top of a lot of people's lists, but if you were, if you're going to do a lot of road riding and you want something that looks cool, and looks different. You're going to stand out with that motorcycle, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. But it is, it's considerably different looking than a Heritage Classic, which is what they were going for. 
but back to your point, I mean, I do think Harley Davidson does have, uh, you know, from the line from the the Sportster from the 883 up to a Heritage Classic, you can get, you know, a little bit of everything unless you're looking for a sport bike. So with Goldman Sachs doing their review of Harley-Davidson and saying that Harley-Davidson has missed a lot of the customers' wants. Uh, what do you think that they have missed? I mean, in your opinion. I mean, I've kind of given my opinions, but in your opinion, what did they miss with the women? What have they missed with, you know, because I have a lot of female riders, and I tell you what, a female rider, when she comes in, she knows what she wants. She's not wishy-washy. Oh, yeah. Unlike if they're going to buy shoes or blouses, okay, <laughs> when they come to have something done, they know what they want done and they know what they like, where a lot of the guy customers, you kind of have to wet nurse. So with women riders and what is being classified as minority riders, okay, what do you think they missed? I think, you know, one of the things that having dealt with uh, females looking for motorcycles – uh, ride height is something that's very important. Every time. And a lot of the Harleys sit high. Uh, they came out with the Softail Slim, which was a great motorcycle, I think. You know, it sits low. Uh, the Fat Boy Low uh, was another good one that the ride height was good on, that a lot of the ladies could, could sit on and be able to touch the ground flat-footed. But, you know, I had... Was Late. the hugger in there with that too? Like the Sportster huggers? Did they sit low enough for a lot of the women? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, it was really hard, and a lot of ladies uh, go into a Harley shop looking at the Sportster because they think that that's the entry level motorcycle. But the Sportsters, for the most part, sit pretty high, and there were a lot of ladies that would sit on a Sportster and couldn't even begin to touch the ground, and so you had to. They had to start looking at other options, and Harley didn't have. A lot of other options until the Softail Slim came out. Unless you wanted to, you know, look at lowering the ride height of the motorcycle, and then you're getting into buying all the accessories, putting new shocks on, and and then you know you're buying a ten ten to fifteen thousand dollar motorcycle and probably spending another twelve hundred dollars at least. Yeah, they come to my shop and they want the front lowered and they want shorter shocks on the back. And then there's a little bit of sacrifice in the ride because you've taken up travel trying yeah. to make it to where the person can, t- can touch the ground, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that you have something like a Heritage Softail Classic, which is a beautiful motorcycle, and uh, but it's, it's wide. And it is wide, isn't if it? If you are short-legged... You don't have a lot of inseam either way. Yeah. Then uh, it makes those motorcycles, the Heritage Softail Classic, uh, even some of the Dynas, uh, and certainly you get into a Street Glide or Road Glide or the the Heritage uh, Heritage Classic. You've got to have a lot of lot of le- lot of leg <laughs> to be able to touch the ground on yeah. that, right? Yeah, to be able to have full control of what you're doing. Okay, so I am at a loss actually on because on the minority uh, part of it because they didn't go into a lot of of explanation about where they had missed the boat but is it is it graphics on the bikes that maybe they missed there is it pricing do you think where maybe they have missed it there if they're going to lump all minorities in as one and segregate uh, women because a lot of times they 
put women whenever they do product reviews they put women if it's if it's primarily like a male dominant something they they use uh, women as part of the minority so they've segregated women out so what did they miss with a black community or a latino community or asian community I have no idea. I mean, we would have to look at the the specifics of that, and you know, in in any kind of speculation on that, I think we would just be wild and probably out of out of line to to go down that to road. To go down that road, I, exactly. Because I, I, I would have no idea. I mean, uh, you know, with the exception of the uh, of there not being a Harley Davidson sport bike or something along those lines. I mean, I don't know what race would even even pulls into. Uh, you I don't know, either. That was that was very Davidson weird that that motorcycle. would like have to do with uh with their sales like there was a lot of sales that they were being missed is it not enough flash because harley davidson offers a lot of stuff that's flash yeah i I mean i think when you're talking that and it's got to be based on marketing more than anything or you know or Or pricing maybe uh i don't i don't know i mean like i said so much i I think you know we're speculating a lot on that and i don't know reaching a lot i don't you know without more information and it just uh, seems odd that they would more data there yeah it is kind of weird you know but i i do think that marketing may may pay play a big part in that um you know you see some marketing you certainly see harley davidson marketing towards women in the motor clothes segment yes and Uh, they have some nice women motor clothes yeah and uh and a little bit of marketing towards women you know buying motorcycles but you don't see a lot of that i mean i've seen a couple of their videos that have targeted women but it's not i i don't think or at least i'm not aware of any hardcore marketing towards other segments. I mean, quite frankly, you see a Harley Davidson commercial, you see a a white guy in a leather jacket on a Harley Davidson. Middle-aged white guy. A middle-aged white guy in a leather jacket riding a Harley Davidson. And you remember the Norton girls and what I thought was interesting with Norton, because I always had Norton girls posters, but Norton actually would show women riding their motorcycles. They would ride the commandos, okay? And they would ride- Wait, did you just say Norton girls rode commando? That's well. There you go, man. There you have it. You heard it here first. That's right. But they rode the motorcycles. They had videos and they had posters of these girls riding. Now maybe they were seductively dressed in some kind of riding outfit. But it seems like that with the the Harley Davidson crowd, the girl is the one who rides on the back, or she's like an accessory. I don't know. I you know driving down the road, you see. I think the age of women riders has come into its own. You see many, many more women that are buying motorcycles, that are riding their own motorcycles. And I think there was a little bit of that before, but I, I mean, I really Not feel like now. I really feel like probably the last 10 years you have seen that segment grow and women have decided, you know what, I don't want to ride on the back. I want to ride my own motorcycle. And I know a lot of women who ride and you I know, know a lot of women that ride and gripe that they got to wait on their husband and boyfriend. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, it is interesting that the I don't know that the marketing targets that, but you see women going out and buying Harley Davidsons. You see women riding Harley Davidsons. I get passed by them on the highway all the time. Um, but they also buy some of the uh, the other manufacturers. I mean, you see them on Hondas and Yamaha Stars and and things like that from time to time. But I. Th- 
feel like that ultimately they all, they try to um, move towards a Harley Davidson in that. So I don't I don't know what the answer is. Um, you know, I go back to I think it's probably what you're saying and the statistics has to be more marketing based than than anything unless I see more data that would explain why any kind of minority or women or something wouldn't be attracted to a Harley Davidson more than any other motorcycle except for you know you either want a sport bike or you want a a cruiser um, you know and those are two vastly different things and Harley Davidson obviously doesn't have a sport bike no, uh, but there are a lot of women who do ride little sport bikes now, and not just 250s, like some of the 600s oh, and yeah. the 750s. Yeah. Uh, women have become a huge marketplace in the power sports industry, not just with motorcycles, but with ATVs and side-by-sides also. Yeah. Well, it would be interesting to look into more data on that and uh, and see some of the t- statistics, because I'm really curious about the minority thing. I mean, how that they even, what they base that upon and um, yeah. You know, what the after why, reading that, I was I was clueless with that. Yeah, very interesting. All right, well that uh, is going to wrap us up for this episode of the Power Sports Podcast. You can listen to us at the Oklahoma Talking Company. That's OklahomaTalking.co. You can also download the podcast on iTunes. Get it directly on your iOS device and listen to it at your leisure. Until next time. For Eric Colvin, I'm Jason Baffrey. We are out of here.